You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hello, welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast. I'm Christoph Jospin, sitting here with my co-host, Ross Kenyon, and producer Paul. A really exciting episode that we have. Usually Ross introduces, but today we're going to let Ross introduce the guest because he knows him personally. So Ross, why don't you start us off here? Yeah, we're here with Joe Quirk in Oakland. I've worked a little bit consulting-wise with Blue Frontiers, which is Joe's company, among his co-founders. And they do seasteading, which is this wacky idea of building floating platforms in the ocean that retain some degree of autonomy to determine their own rules, depending on where they are. Joe, I don't want to put too many words in your mouth, though. Why don't you evangelize a little bit? That's your that's your title, right? Yes, I am a evangelist. That's great. How great portmanteau. Yeah. I was trying to figure it out. Is it S-E-A or? S-E-A. Okay. So it's a play on evangelist and C. And it is, in fact, wacky. It's very nearly as wacky as trying to change the world by clicking little levers in private booths for special politicians and hoping the world does what you want. <laughs> that's pretty, a hopelessly wacky. utopian view of the world it makes a lot more sense and is much more realistic to go build your own little miniature nation. Yeah, I wish it was a little bit easier to to try that. When you when you describe it as Dan Carlin has this way of approaching politics as like the the view from Mars, <clears throat> or if you're explaining it to like to a Martian, yes. uh, you'd be like, yeah, you're just you're just pulling little levers and then like, uh, people do things off of that that you yes. don't really have any control of after that point. You'd be like, this doesn't sound always like the greatest of ways to to do things. Right. And then the Martian would say, so I assume you call this planet ocean? You'd say, no, 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 we call it planet Earth. He's like, well, more than two thirds of it is planet ocean. What are you doing with all that? It's like, no, we just stay on land and then we fight amongst each other about who gets to control everybody else through the political process. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose that is one way of looking at it. So Blue Frontiers, um, you've also been involved in sea setting before Blue Frontiers was a thing. Why don't you tell us a little bit about why you're here and why you care about the things that you care about? Well, I am an author. I write, I tell stories, basically. That's what I've been doing. And the main thing I do is listen to really smart people and force them to explain it 20 times until a dumb person understands it. And then once I can explain it, then I can explain it like a guy in the bar. So I, I've written novels. I've written science books. I wrote a, a book about evolution called It's Not You, It's Biology, The Science of Love, Sex, and Relationships, which is basically, I take academic papers about evolutionary psychology. I put it in English, whereupon it becomes automatically funny, and then I make all the money off the scientist's work. But I came to... <laughs> but I science came, translation in a nutshell right there. Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they couldn't say that without using obscure words you, that you don't understand. So, But I came to understand the power of variation and selection. It's the, the secret recipe that drives forward progress. So the microphones we're using right now, many different forms have been proposed and they survive by people selecting them. And whatever does the selecting, it ends up getting better and better just for them. So it works in life, it works in technology, it works in consumer goods, it works in language. It doesn't really occur in governance itself, the most important service in the world. And because, you know, if you want to vary and select among your governments, you need, as Patry Friedman points out, a revolution or a war or an economic collapse. And who has time for that? Let's just stick with what we got. So I always thought that was sort of an intractable problem. 
And then I was on a cruise ship and I noticed that the cruise ship was a floating city and it was the highest standard of living I'd ever had. And it was cheaper than the coastal hotel I'd stayed in the night before I was on the cruise ship. I also noticed a lot of the people working on the cruise ship were from the developing world and they were living a much better life on the cruise ship than they would live elsewhere. And I couldn't figure out why is this floating city better? I didn't really have an example. I didn't really have an understanding, but I could see that it was somehow a floating city and it was flying the flag of like Panama or Liberia. So I said, well, this is interesting. In some way, it's like self-governing. Then about six weeks later, I was at my 10th Burning Man. And anybody who goes to Burning Man 10 times notices that rules evolve in ways that are not predictable given their initial parameters. So I watched it develop over a decade. And you start to discover interesting things about the way people can live together that you wouldn't have thought were possible. And invariably, you start thinking, wouldn't it be cool if we had more of these? Wouldn't it be cool if we had hundreds all over the world? Blank slates everywhere where people could, from the bottom up, experiment with their own societies. People want to laugh at Burning Man, but you look at the challenges they face, especially environmental ones. Uh, if you propose to people, let's have a temporary city of 60,000 people set itself up in the middle of a flat, featureless desert, bring their own food, their own water, and their own porta potties, and then they're committed to leaving no trace. They all have to move out and take everything with them, such that you know, people who come and scan the desert, for the most part, can't tell that people were there. Is this even possible? I would say it's not possible. But by developing techniques for this over time, they can solve amazing social environmental problems. So you start thinking, well, what if there were more experiments with bottom-up uh, society formation in more places? I'm not the only person to think that way. Yeah, you and can't it, just leave and start your own country. or there's, You can't do anything like that, right? Right. You can't leave and start your own country because all land is claimed by existing governments. It was at Burning Man where someone introduced me to Patry Friedman. Patry Friedman explained what seasteading was, and I didn't understand. I, I thought he said seascaping. And, <laughs> and my wife is an esthetician, so I thought this had something to do with scapes, <laughs> Brazilians or something. And he described very briefly, yeah, this would be floating cities on the ocean. And because I'd just been on a cruise ship, I said, yeah, technologically, I think humanity could go in that situation. Seems a little weird that someone would start a nonprofit to make this happen sooner than would otherwise occur. And I walked away. And then after Burning Man, I noticed that the seasteading logo was based on the Burning Man logo. And that really caught my eye. Why would proposed cities on the ocean be modeled after a temporary city in the desert? I vaguely remembered the name Patrick Freisman or something, and I started Googling, <laughs> and I found his blog. And that's when I had my conversion moment. So Patry elucidated that you could solve this problem of monopoly governments that don't evolve, that aren't subject to variation and selection, if you weren't on land, but if you're on water, and the very ground beneath your feet could disassemble according to the choices of residents. And you could essentially vote with your house, as Patry put it. Like you fully have, modular, right? You could Fully modular. Yeah, you could disassociate, you could go somewhere else, you could join a new group. Right. Yeah. And as long as people could choose societies, you wouldn't need a, a monopoly on governments. You would have variation by societies and selection by citizens, which to me, in principle, would unleash evolution in, in governance itself, the most important service that exists. All social problems flow downstream from governance. 
And I also understood that this is technologically feasible. I don't understand the, the fundamentals of AI. I don't understand the fundamentals of all sorts of technologies. I definitely understand cruise ships, platforms, governance, disassembling. I'm like, this, is, this needs to happen as soon as possible because it could solve a very deep problem simply by setting better examples that show something to old governments. And we little appreciate how small, nimble governments set examples that end up changing the policies of old, big continental governments. I can give you many examples of that. Yeah, for fintech, I always look to Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, the Caymans, Jersey, Guernsey, the little tiny, tiny little islands and, and little political entities, right? Great examples, great examples. And even something like just simple things like Estonia experiments with the flat tax. So Estonia was one of the countries that was suddenly independent after the USSR disassembled into small little units. So Estonia initiated this crazy idea called the flat tax, which was unthinkable. Everyone thought it was crazy. And then they immediately grew at more than twice the rate of other Eastern European countries and Western European countries, which were all growing at the time. This started a debate among other countries about the flat tax. And now something like 20% of countries have initiated a flat tax. Many American states have a flat tax. We would not have that innovation if this small little country hadn't tried this. So the more countries you can proliferate, the more examples they can set, the more bigger nations change their policies. So we're talking about this as sort of an abstraction. It's sort of like at the root of society, how would, could you redo things and allow people to experiment with their own ideas? But once I talked the Seasteading Institute into letting me co-write the book with Patry, I kind of panicked because I realized I can't just make this about ideas. And it wasn't until I went to the 2012 Seasteading Conference and met the people I would later call aquapreneurs who are actually working on the solutions that, that Nori cares about, like you know seaweed that can absorb you know carbonic acid from the ocean and you could have restorative foods and algae farms and fish farms. And once you have actual innovators coming to seasteading with their solution, you realize this is a story about people and the solutions they can bring. And it attracts people like you guys. Anybody with a new idea for how society can be done better that needs a startup society comes to the Seasteading Institute and is now getting involved with the startup company Blue Frontiers. So I want to interject here, Joe. This is actually, we've never talked about how exactly we came up with Nori. We went through this whole brainstorming process, but reading your book and your sections on aquaculture and seaweed cultivation and its potential for not only just good business sense and feeding the world, but also decarbonizing the oceans, it made, made quite an impact on me. Would, would you guys agree with that? I think it was one of my primary inspirations for, for the name, yeah. Yeah. On top of that, it's one of those very simple things that humans can do that allows something to proliferate rapidly. And like you say, from the ground up, or in this case, from the sea up. So I read your book. I loved it. Yeah, we've I, all actually, read it. We've all read it. It's and a good I, book. Paul gave it to me. Paul actually gave it to me when he was off to Tahiti to go on a trip that was organized by Blue Frontiers. But a number of the things you just said really resonate that I want to pick up on. One of them is volunteers can do something quickly and don't need to wait and they can experiment. And when those experiments actually take a foothold, that can influence the rest of the world and actually create something that's a better system for society. And I really feel like we live at this moment when all of these things are coming together. We have a population that is growing and you have people who, quite frankly, don't have a place to go. You have land, which is 
being used up. You have governments which are oppressive or sort of holding down on people. You have environmentalists who are, for better or worse, want to innovate but don't have the space to innovate or Mm -hmm. to try new ideas. You have a number of health problems. You have all of these cures that when you bring them together and under a large umbrella, which it seems like is the Seasteading Institute and the company that's advancing this, Blue Frontiers, you could really drive some real change. And what is maybe just a dream at Burning Man starts to become a reality. Is that about right? Can we see that this isn't just some crazy idea, but it's actually taking foothold and there's actually a plan to start scaling these yes, ideas up? Yes, it's a, it's a necessary idea. Like humanity doesn't realize they're, it's pushing towards the oceans and innovators are trying to get beyond existing jurisdictions the same way Europeans were coming to the new world to try something new because the rules don't adapt. And all these, these aquapreneurs I met at the seasteading conferences and another you know, reaching out to the Seasteading Institute that I feature in the book, all of them have these great ideas that they can't push forward. You know, the seaweed farmer, Ricardo Radulovich, the aquaculture regulations are written in a previous century, and they're not adaptable to the new technologies that are coming online. And I've talked to many seaweed farmers in California and Mexico and all sorts of places that are trying to get outside existing systems so they so they can do the new things. They need regulatory startups. Fish farmers, it's really tragic. You know, Neil Sims, who I also feature in the book, and there's many more like him who have scaled up these mobile, sustainable Buckminster Fuller fish cages that swim with the schooling fish and completely defy all the problems with traditional fish farming, still have to cope with the laws and regulations written for those old fish farms in the 1980s, you know? People are dying for regulatory startups where they can push forward new innovations. And everyone is trying to get out. They're trying to get beyond these crusty old rules and start you know, the new century. And a lot of them reach out to seasteading. And a lot of them have, are now volunteering at Blue Frontiers. Yeah, I guess maybe this would be a good point to explain what is Blue Frontiers. And I also want to bring Paul into this and hear about his uh, little jaunt over there. So Blue Frontiers is the result of French Polynesia, the president of French Polynesia, in fact, writing a letter to the Seasteading Institute inviting us to come check out French Polynesia as a potential host site for the first seasteads. And when you want to actually, it's one thing to promote an idea through a nonprofit, but if you want to actually build seasteads, you're going to need an actual startup company. And so Blue Frontiers is the startup company that is putting together all the experts under one umbrella, one company, and a large group of like 70 to 90 active volunteers at this point in various areas of expertise. And today is the day we launched Seacoin. <laughs> you guys are here the day we, we launched. Oh, you, you, la- you launched it. I feel like uh, we, we all missed this. Yeah, I think it just happened today. I think I can say launch, or how about announce? Oh. I think the sale will be in May, but the public announcement and the thing on the website and, and the existence of Seagoin is now public as of today. Oh, well, congratulations. That's, that's Thank good to you. hear. We will continue to need your guidance. <laughs> it's been a, the, the regulations around launching new tokens is quite onerous and sometimes changing, and various agencies claim it and are duking it out amongst themselves to figure out who will have the privilege and authority of having the final say. 
So it has been an intellectually stimulating question, though at times quite frustrating. I'm sure you probably feel similarly. Yes, but you can also imagine the situation that these various agencies are in where, you know, they have protocols, they have setups, they have definitions of things. And now there's a new innovation that doesn't fit any of those rules. So they can't even decide who's in charge, what's the position we're going to take on this. And they're trying to figure it out. It's much better if we could have rules emerge from the bottom up in that space rather than using old paradigms. So, Yeah, sometimes people get pretty caught up into the precautionary principle way of thinking for regulation where there have been explicit cases of fraud and, and scams that have happened in the cryptocurrency space. But those people have been prosecuted. Often they've been subpoenaed when things have happened. But I don't necessarily want to just apply the old rules or make rules up out of nowhere just based on ideas we'd have. I, I much prefer the regulatory sandbox approach that you're describing. Let it mature a little bit. One of the great analogies I've heard for this is imagine like the internet starting and you had to come up with all the rules for the internet before it had even matured. Right. Would that have delayed it? Would it ever have become the thing that it is now? Right. Would it? I don't even know. It's probably uh, terrible. Yeah, it would, it would be terrible. If they had tried to regulate it with rules from the 1950s, you know, yeah. they wouldn't be able to imagine what it's going to be like. But if, you know, no one wants to work in an industry with no rules, but if you establish the rules from the, from the bottom up within the industries among the experts actually involved, creating rules is also a discovery process. It's not just the discovery of innovation. It's the discovery of the rules that go along with it. And I would cite as an ex example the rules that operate on the ocean. And I'd kind of like to write a book about this that I'd kind of like to call the stateless half of the earth about there's regulatory bodies, there's food safety bodies, there's all sorts of decentralized, there's safety enforcers that there's like uh, 50 ship classification societies in the world that all compete to be the one to regulate the building of ships. And it's not state controlled at all. It's completely free market. And there's all sorts of complex rules that have developed on the ocean that in a sort of decentralized way, which is what we'd like to unleash on seasteads. Yeah. Whenever I think of maritime law, I, I'm sure, Paul, you're the same. Do you immediately think of Michael Bluth and, <laughs> and Arrested Development? Yeah. They can't prosecute you for treason out there. <laughs> That's right. Well, when you talk about maritime law emerging, I know a decent amount about it. Not too much, but... I know the Hanseatic League in the Baltic was quite big, the old like German trading cities mm -hmm. there. But this whole corpus of law just emerged through people having judges make decisions and using those as precedents. And it just sort of had a tendency to work rather than legislators sitting around in the building and trying to figure out the best way to do that and being lobbied. Instead, you had judges being like, no, this is the way that it works. And it's best if we do it this way. Is that broadly how it works? Yes. It was created by judges over time. And also even, well, the Hanseatic League, that's certainly true, but also created among merchants, where we need some means of getting along where there's an accepted set of rules that we can all agree on so we can all do business together. And when the people making the rules are incentivized to have the disputes be resolved as quickly as possible, you often end up with, I uh, like this term, the fluidity of rulemaking and rapid evolution where bad rules go away, but rules that people like tend to stay. And there's a whole complex way of describing that. You know, once you kind of grok the seasteading Blue Frontiers idea, you can kind of drill down into all the ways this is really great, you know, but then it becomes well, why should French Polynesia or other island nations be interested in this? Tell us, Joe. <laughs> well, well, 
So the problem of the lack of innovation and governance is a deep problem in the world. But the other big problem in the world is, is sea level change, threatening coastal nations and especially island nations around the world. French Polynesia is worried they're going to lose a third of their islands by the end of this century, or at least have their water tables severely threatened. So if you can go to coastal and island nations and propose a way that they can organically adapt to sea level rise affordably in exchange for baby step experiments with seasteads, where each step, the risk of failure is absorbed by the people building the seasteads, not the country itself, and each success, the prosperity is shared locally, then you can start this small scaling up of platforms that allow people to adjust to sea level change that experiment with new ways of governing ourselves. And we kind of step-by-step step affordably solve two of the biggest problems in the world, which is the change in sea level and the need for startup innovation in society. We always love every startup that they combine two fields that are already complicated and misunderstood. Like <laughs> we do climate change plus blockchain. You're like, uh, oh, or you can do yours is pretty much the same. But if you can add AI and machine learning and everything else to VR. it too, and, not, and not oh, VR, AR, yeah, no, but oftentimes you'll see like three or four appendages onto uh, startups like that. And it's scary. You're like, there's no way you're good at probably even one of these. Maybe, maybe two. Yes. No, he's good at two. <laughs> Were you going to say something, Paul? No. But yeah, why don't you tell the listeners about your trip out to French Polynesia and, and what you were up to with Blue Frontiers? Yeah. So last September, Ross came to me. Ross had been working with Blue Frontiers and he told me about this week that Blue Frontiers was hosting where they were inviting people out to come see Tahiti and French Polynesia and learn more about the project and share ideas and just kind of generally try to contribute to the growth of seasteading. And I was super fascinated. I, I first came across seasteading in, I want to say 2010 or 2011 or so. Were you at that event at ASU that Patri spoke at? No, no. I think somebody at ASU might have told me about that. And that's how I heard about it. So I was interested in it from the governance perspective. So as someone who sees the same sort of issues with slow movement and policy change and ill adaptations to the modern world, the idea of having uh, sovereign floating cities that can experiment with different ways of governing people is really appealing to me. But then it wasn't until Ross told me about this. So I got your book, Joe, and I read it and everything clicked into place for me because what I really liked about your book was the way that you focused on all of these people who were trying to make innovations in the way of doing things that would support seasteading that are trying to solve environmental problems. And so it wasn't it wasn't presented as like, this is a, a crazy utopian fantasy of libertarians who just want to secede from their big centralized countries. It's about this is technology that can help solve major problems. We can clean up the oceans, we can clean up the earth while providing all these other benefits, everything that you've been talking about so far. So that was really appealing to me. And I applied for the week I got later that day, I got on the phone with Randy Henkin. And we talked about it for a little bit. And he was like, all right, I, I told him about what we were doing with Nori. He said, Okay, this is great, you should come. So in October last year, I went out with I think there were there were seven, eight or nine people it kind of changed throughout the week. And there were about eight to 10 of us participating in this. And the Blue Frontiers team took us on tours around Tahiti. We did several different cultural explorations with locals, learning a lot about Polynesian culture. 
which was super fascinating. And we went to Marea and to an atoll, Titiaroa, and got to see uh, different areas. We didn't go too much further away just because the French Polynesian islands are like so, so spread apart. Isn't it something like the Polynesia occupies the same area of land that like the landmass of Europe does? Yeah, it, you, it's, it's, it's enormous. It's, it's about the same size as Western Europe. Yeah, it's huge. Wow. So we only went to the, the local islands. Something that you pointed out to me, Joe, when we were there that I had not occurred to me before was that Polynesians were, were always explorers. And Tahiti was really like the center of their exploration, how they moved around to the different islands of Polynesia. The last island group, the last archipelago that they got to was the islands of Hawaii. And the idea of exploring and going, not knowing what they're going to find and going out there and looking for some new land where there is some opportunity for them, it seasteading makes perfect sense. It just extends. This is just like the next phase of exploration in trying to find the new opportunity. And so now we're making new islands. And that really like stuck with me. And I found it super interesting on a more personal, like selfish level and how Nori can benefit from this. The idea of harvesting kelp and growing kelp and then just basically dumping it over the side of the ocean, letting that sink to the bottom as a carbon sink is that would sort of collectively fall under the, the name of blue carbon. There's a lot of research being done into this, and we, we could see that as a methodology that we would support to do. And that could be a beneficial thing for inhabitants of seasteads to do. That, like we could provide this sort of financial mechanism for them to grow kelp, you know, take some of it for food and nutrition and mm -hmm. take some of it and just throw it over the side of the island and let it sink. And you're doing multiple things at once. That was kind of the gist of the trip and how, how interesting it was. So th this is like a dream come true for me because, uh, you know, when I was discovering this, you're putting it in the book with a sense of why don't people know about this? I have to write about this. So the actual entrepreneurs can go out there and do it. But yes, that that vision of how aquaculture, whether it's seaweed or it's fish, that you could actually, you know, chop it up and drop it to the ocean floor. If you're looking to remove carbon from the ocean in the atmosphere, you could get carbon credits for this or whatever. But it would essentially be out of the biosphere for 100 million years. I mean, it would drop down below where photosynthesis can reach. And this would be a way of, you know, restorative fuel, restorative eating, a whole restore of environmentally restorative industry. My other favorite thing about growing kelp is that if you do it in coastal areas where large amounts of agriculture have taken place, growing the kelp can help clean up the excess phosphorus and nitrogen runoff that's come into these coastal areas that's choking the life out of the coast. So it's it, you, you've got fertilizer built into the water for free to grow this kelp right. and it's cleaning up this thing that these chemicals that are sort of toxic. Yes. And th this is the actual vision of our actual engineers who will be building the floating islands in, in French Polynesia or in, or in countries around the world, which is to absorb the nutrient runoff that you know comes off of agriculture and absorbing it with seaweed and different kinds of algae and seaweed that would take out the heavy metals. And there's a, there's a whole discovery process around that. And you could actually restore coastal environments. And this really resonates for me. I wrote a whole book designed for adults and children about the Marine Mammal Center here in California. It's called Call to the Rescue. And it's all about how marine mammals are affected negatively by nutrient pollution and how that gives rise to mass die-offs and the negative environmental effects. And so we always think like, oh, we have to prevent people from doing this. We have to stop fertilizer from running into the seas. I don't know how we're going to do that. 
But if you think of that, all that nutrient, what's called nutrient pollution is a resource. You know, Buckminster Fuller said that pollution is simply resources we're not using. Mm -hmm. And you can completely restore all those coastal environments by absorbing all that nutrient runoff and carbonic acid and turning it back into food and fuel if Blue 21 has their vision fulfilled. We were actually at the Buckminster Fuller Institute yesterday and did a podcast over there. Want you <laughs> with Amanda? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah, you know her. I'm a fan. You're a fan. Yeah, yeah. I've met her once or twice. Yeah. Mm. You tech burners uh, involved in environmental pursuits. I feel like it probably isn't the biggest community, or maybe it is. Maybe is that everyone? Is that all sixty thousand? There's a lot. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a sizable community. Yeah. Well, very nice. That's, there's a lot to be excited about there um, from multiple angles too. And there's anytime you can take a waste product and turn it into an economic input. I, I've never heard that Buckminster Fuller quote, but I love it because that's one of the themes that I, I come back to constantly here, where if you can take that, take that problem and then all of a sudden it becomes a solution and it's economically viable. There's no reason for anyone to fight over it. It's not like you need to like no longer pollute or no longer fertilize your crops. Like, oh, you can still do that. We just found a way where we can uh, make it all work together. Yeah. That's the best kind of solution, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Fuller literally said pollution are resources we're letting diffuse because we're ignorant of their value. And, you know, Blue 21 working through Blue Frontiers has this concept of cyclical metabolism that we could create a societies in harmony with how the nature itself works. And it's just like an extension of nature itself, which is what it should be. Are they the, the ones growing the fish and then using the oil from the fish to convert that into fuels? Or is that a different group? So in the book, they were called Delta Sync. Uh -huh. The first aquapreneurs you meet are Karina Shapeska and Rutger de Graaf, who are the co-founders of Delta Sync. Their first language is Dutch. And I think after a while, they didn't realize that having sync in the thing for your floating city, <laughs> it's supposed to be S-Y-N-C. So they changed themselves to Blue 21. It's sort of like a different entity. And those very people featured in the book are now the people that are going to be building the first floating islands, almost definitely. While we're throwing out Buckminster Fuller quotes, I have this sticker that Amanda gave us yesterday. Just would like to say it again. You'd never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And I think that really resonates not only for what Nori is doing, but what for Blue Frontiers is trying to do. because. There's an entirely new model that we can build here. And I just want to take this back a little bit to the theme of this podcast, which is the Reversing Climate Change podcast. And I know we're also the Floating Architecture, Engineering, and Design series of the Blue Frontiers podcast. And those two things together, okay, we can definitely play a role in reversing climate change. And on the one hand, you're helping islands that are most affected by sea level rise adapt but you're also enabling that adaptation to be regenerative to the health of the planet. And so when we think about climate change being a function of too much greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and excess in the ocean, where now oceans are acidifying and coral reefs are dying and all sorts of fish populations are just having weird trends that we never saw before because of how the planet is out of kilter. We now can see a movement that doesn't just say, okay, we're going to go live and kind of save ourselves by floating at sea, but let's let's float at sea. Let's live in a way that restores the health of this planet. And let's right. play a role in innovating to get that health of the planet there more quickly in a way that makes the systems today kind of obsolete. Right. So 
Yeah, because it's, it's not just that these floating islands are being built to serve the needs of people in places that are going to be impacted by sea level rise. Like the technologies that are developed as part of this, like are going to be beneficial to all of humanity. And it's just a matter of figuring out the business model that can enable the growth of this. There has to be some sort of value created for some people willing to pay for that value. But the technologies and the things that we learn from that, like that can be applied in so many more ways. Yes. And seasteading is not an escape. It's a solution to the problems that land people care about. And that's why most people are pursuing it. A land people? <laughs> land lovers. We prefer Terrans. Uh, yes. <laughs> land folk. But yes, that quote, Buckminster Fuller, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. That's one of the first things Rutger de Graaf said to me, co-founder of Delta Sync and Blue 21, when I first met him, to talk to him. I mean, it's like they were independently conceiving of seasteading over there in the Netherlands without calling it that in every dimension. And they actually built a floating pavilion in Rotterdam. And it's like, oh my God, they're like really getting started. So we partnered with them to take the next step. And what's next? What's coming for Blue Frontiers? What's coming for Blue Frontiers is hopefully we'll get lots of attention for the Seacoin. Hopefully we will, we've fulfilled all our obligations to French Polynesia and we hope that they approve of our legislation for the sea zone, which takes the best practices of the 4,000 special economic zones around the world and instantiates them on one Can you explain sea what, zone. A, what a special economic zone is? Special economic zone I think of as legal islands created within countries with special exemptions from certain regulations and certain taxes in order to create prosperity. I think of the first one as being Hong Kong, the next one as being Shenzhen, and you know, over the last 50 or 60 years, these have been so successful. Little miniature modest governance startups with just some different rules and some exemptions created within countries have been so successful that more than 4,000 have proliferated across the world in like 70% of the world's countries at this point. This is the most momentous political revolution in the world, and nobody knows about it because it's completely peaceful and it's from the inside out. And Tom W. Bell writes about it in depth in his book, Your Next Government? Question mark From Nation States to Stateless Nations. And he's uh, one of the key legal advisors at Blue Frontiers. And he sort of designed the C-Zone, which is the next step beyond the special economic zone. So it's kind of like taking the best, the greatest hits of, of regulations and rules from various countries and applying them on the C-Zone. And basically, it's strongly inclined towards personal and business freedom. So we're going to choose a peer group of countries among the most peaceful and prosperous countries on earth. They're going to decide which rules and regulations are going to be on the C-Zone. If they all agree that a rule is necessary, then that will be on the C-Zone. If even one of those countries prospers without that rule, then you can veto that rule. So you only have you know, the rules that are demonstrated to work and be necessary in the most prosperous nations on earth. So again, we're also on a legal frontier. So it's not a willy-nilly, we're, we're going out there and, and just starting all over. We're taking best practices that already exist, strongly inclined towards freedom. We're only going to use the ones that have been demonstrated to work, and we're going to throw out the ones that aren't, and we're going to let these societies emerge from the bottom up, developing their own rules. We're going to have something called a C-Zone authority that administrates these rules. It's going to be under the protection of one of the most peaceful and prosperous the, one of the most peaceful countries on earth, which is French Polynesia, which in turn will be a part of France. So there's going to be these little concentric circles going down to the sea zone. So it's all very 
just a perfect little minimal viable product for the seastead that will be able to scale up and become the seasteads on the high seas of the future. Yeah. When is that? When when can Nori relocate? 2021. I expect you guys on the first seastead. <laughs> well, at least come visit. Because <laughs> we need to... I really like Nori. I start drooling if I hear it. <laughs> uh, who knows? I mean, I think this could scale up. If, the fir- if we have the first few examples that are People can point at it and look at it and it's beautiful and they gasp and it's made of something that's different and it's an international community and it's a an incubation hub showing all these blue technologies, wave technologies, and people get a view of what the future of sustainable floating societies is like. I think that will have such an effect that other countries worried about sea level rise will reach out to us. And I think getting these first few examples is really important and then we can scale up really fast and proliferate thousands of them all over the world in the decades ahead, I hope. It's pretty exciting. And we'll keep watching this to see what happens. It's There's a lot of moving parts to it too. I, working on the team, there's people that are working on the food systems. There's people who are working on the architecture. Clearly, you can't have something that would not be seaworthy. And then also there's <laughs> a huge legal component to it too. And then there's a, a blockchain component to it. It seems like you're innovating or, or trying to in, in multiple areas and keeping things real lively. Yeah, it turns out that founding a totally new civilization from the ground up or the water up is even more complicated than it sounds. <laughs> but fortunately, you could have said the same thing about, you know, my iPhone. Like the people creating the iPhone, for instance, couldn't imagine the apps that were going to be on it and which ones would go out of business, which ones would work. I don't know. I'm just providing the platform and then all the innovators can rush in and compete to serve people the best. And that's how I end up with all these marvelous little apps that I hope in the future will be governance apps. And I think the the innovations are in principle unpredictable that will emerge from floating societies. I think we share that in common with you. We see ourselves the same way that we we build this platform where people can pay for carbon removal and all sorts of different methodologies people can show up with and test out and, and try to prove that these are valid and, and are removing carbon dioxide and other people will be willing to pay for them. And who knows what are the different ways that people could do that, that they aren't doing it right now. Yeah. And Joe McKinney, one of the co-founders of the Startup Society Institute, he convinced me live on his podcast to refer to myself as he refers to himself as an exitarian. So if you have to choose an ideology, like the insight- as someone who only eats eggs. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. We need to rethink that name. <laughs> The principle of exit, that the fundamental mechanism that works is that if people don't like something, they can leave. And so the people providing the service have to please them. So as long as you can choose voluntarily among all these different services, then the best options will emerge because the innovators will have to compete with you. And we just, we don't have that with our societies now. I, we, I can't just quit the United States and leave if I, it, it's not that easy. No, you have to pay them a ton of money to do so. And they keep raising the exit tax. If people want to renounce their citizenship, it gets Uh more and more expensive and more onerous. Yeah. There's a very good book that I read. It's very short. You've probably read Exit Voice and Loyalty, right? No, all my friends have read it and they've all argued about it with me so much. I feel like I don't need to read it. Yeah. It's a pretty quick read, but you probably just know these ideas. Anyways, the general point of it is that there's two main ways to change a system. You can either have voice, in which case you get to vote or complain to the manager at a restaurant. The alternative is exit, in which case you never go to the restaurant again, or you just leave the country and you immigrate somewhere. And there are, there are trade-offs to both of these approaches, but the sea setting in general seems like a very strong exit potential. 
which in turn might actually encourage voice if they know that you can't really could leave very easily. Wouldn't they be more likely to resort to voice rather than exit? Yes. I mean, I, I my wife is exercising her voice at the IRS right now and not getting much of a response. I have registered complaints uh, at the post office. And so I have voice at the post office. It's somehow <laughs> it just doesn't work because I, I can't just take my business and go somewhere else. And the people providing the service don't care. But at uh, other services monopolies. I use, if I express a complaint to just about anybody at Starbucks or something, they're so worried about a Yelp review. My voice has no power because I hold in my hand the threat of switching to Pete's. <laughs> That's all it takes. What I love about this is that if you're trying to change the world in the marketplace, the market of providing a service compels bad people to behave well. And if you're trying to change the world through politics, the political process compels good people to become more corrupt in order to succeed. And you know, a great example of this was in between writing the seasteading book proposal for publishers and waiting for it to sell at a publisher, I took a job at a lamp store where the boss was one of the most bitter, meanest guys I've, I've ever met. Just very, really bitter, mean old man. He really had problems. But when he was in the presence of his customers, he was so serviceable and so knowledgeable and so helpful. And all his customers just thought he was the greatest guy. But then to everyone else, he was just such a mean guy. But because it was in his interest to be a good guy in order to sell his products, he was compelled to become a better person because all his customers had the power of exit. They could go to the other lamp store. Do you want to say your line, Ross? No. <laughs> no, I love that. I don't, I don't want to do it. Like, I always I always say it and I just got baited into doing it. <laughs> when you have when you can appeal to people's selfish desires and the system turns that into pro-social ends, that's like the ultimate outcome of policy. Right. So you have this guy who doesn't really care about these people, but he's getting paid to, so he's going to behave himself. And yes. we're all better off as a result. And if we didn't have that, he'd probably just be a cranky old guy, get off my lawn, yelling, yeah. yelling at he, the mailman. Yeah, that's, that's who he was, actually. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> he was the mailman. Yeah, and it was real. <laughs> um, yeah I mean, it, it, if we can agree that human nature exists, you don't even need to say whether we're selfish or not selfish. We can just say that I care about myself and my family and my friends more than I care about my allies. And then I care about my allies more than I care about my general tribe. And then I care about my tribe more than I care about strangers. So if you give me power, I'm always going to choose my family and friends and the people who got me in this position over strangers, because that's just my priority. That's the way we're built. So what compels people to devote themselves to serving strangers? It's when their only power, if I can pursue my self-interest through providing things for them. This is the classic, I associate this with Hayek, but it's been all over the place that there's a, there's a micro order. That's the family and your friends. You don't need market economics working in there. We, we can treat each other well just by being altruistic. But when it comes to the extended order, you can't really hold people accountable through social norms that you only see once. Like right. if they just come to your shop, you have to use the discipline of the market of profit and loss of someone actually paying you for a service. And that's just the, one, of the, one of the better ways to, to organize a giant mass society. Yes. And governance itself should be like this. A politician shouldn't just be afraid that I might vote for the only other option. The politician should be afraid that I'm just going to take my taxes and go to another place or choose another form of governance. And that's, you know, credit cards are a form of governance and they, they hustle to please me and 
we can go on and on with this. I wish California was better at this, but the, the big states like California and New York, especially, they, they treat demand for living there as inelastic that doesn't really change. Granted, people are leaving California on net for places like Texas that have a booming economy and lower taxes, but I don't feel like they respond very well to attracting people. It's like everything's expensive here. There's high taxes and it isn't that well governed. We have the fifth biggest economy in the world. We have Hollywood and Silicon Valley. Yet half the time, like the the books aren't balanced at all. And it seems like we fight over everything. It's kind of a kooky place to live. But they they treat you as sort of like, you want to be here. You want the beach, right? Well, too bad. (laughs) This is what you have to deal with. So if I have a monopoly over this section of one of the largest economies in the world, I can just grow and provide worse services and tax people worse and worse. But notice how it's like people are starting to leave California. It used to be the place where people go, and now it's a place where people are leaving, largely because it's poorly governed. And we already have town steading and, and city steading. People can switch among towns and cities. And the more choice you have, the better service gets. This is great. I think we should probably end it. But I could see why your podcast with Blue Frontiers went for two and a half hours because I think that we could probably do the same, just yeah, keep goofing around and hanging out here. <laughs> yeah. I feel adequately evangelized, though. I got the full, do you know Wololo? Wololo? Wololo. <laughs> That's from Age of Empires. When you would convert enemy units with a priest, they would just go, Wololo, Wololo. I got evangelized. Yes, well. Fully evangelized. <laughs> you guys, that was just an appetizer. I, I think I think my my conversation with the evangelist Natalie Meza Garcia, I think we went for seven hours. That was wow. edited down. And then, so she just took the first two and a half hours and made that a podcast. But we've thought about... You can make a whole audio book out of that. Yeah. We're interested in the same thing. So we just kept going deeper and deeper yeah. into all this stuff. And it's sort of... And, I, you know, it's She been, has all sorts of interesting ideas about spontaneous order and systems developing from parts that don't communicate with each other and so on. It's really interesting. Yeah. There are certain people where I find out what they're interested in, and then I say they should be seasteaders. And then they become seasteaders. One of them was Natalie. Another one was Tom Bell. You can just tell by how they talk about things that they will be interested in seasteading. So, yeah. Well, thanks for being here, Joe. Thanks for having us in your home. Yes. Thanks for being here in my home. Uh, <laughs> how long can we stay? <laughs> uh, depends on what you say about my home live on the air. It's beautiful. Okay. You can stay. Thanks, Joe.